0: The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan,
1: of the animated series that told their story.
2: It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of
1: gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie. A Gargoyles Podcast.
3: Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles Podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com, and I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee and Phoenician thank you for your support and if you want to get the show this show earlier check it out there as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber there will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon but before I turn it over to our hosts I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a spectacular radio, a spectacular Spider-Man related show. Let's start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at SpideyDudeRadio and this show at FromEerie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcast, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our vis- visibility. And like, share, and subscribe for more at SpideyDude Network. YouTube.com slash Dude Network. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash SpideyDude Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, Instagram.com slash SpideyDude Network. With that, out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky.
2: Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Erie, a Gargoyles podcast. Joining me as usual is my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And I'm your host, Greg Bashansky. well, co-host. And also, as usual, joining us is the supervising producer, co-creator, and writer of the SLG and upcoming Dynamite Comics, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we're very happy to have with us a very accomplished individual who did research for the Scottish history for the four-part of our discussing and other lore throughout the series, and an, and an accomplished former deputy district attorney for Los Angeles County, Tuppence McIntyre.
0: Hi everyone! Thank you for having me.
2: Tuppins, we're very happy to have you on the show. It's very much so. One of the main appeals of the show for me was always the use of true history, along with the mythology and all the science fiction and superhero aspects alongside that. And I want to thank you in advance right now for helping to bring that true history to this show. Well, thank you. We're going to begin with a little bit of news. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York. Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. Gargoyle's comic book, the first issue for Dynamite, tops 100,000 pre-orders. Greg, how does that feel? <laughs>
1: it feels kind of insane, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's great. It's really great, but it just it's mind-boggling to me, um, you know, uh, I obviously a big part of that is all the uh, various variant covers, yeah, uh, of which I've seen like a dozen, uh, and I don't even think that's all because there are, you know, individual stores that get their own covers. But uh, yeah, hundred thousand pre-orders—that's great. I, you know, the big question, of course, is. You know, issue ones always sell more than the rest of the series. I don't expect issue two to be that high, obviously, but you know, the question is is can we stay in in those at least in the ballpark of those kind of numbers or are we just gonna come crashing with issue two? It's very frightening <laughs> to me in a way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, fingers crossed. Uh, we've got
1: a bunch of great Covers for issue two, also, and um, and uh, I think you know the story's pretty exciting and fun, and but I'm really proud of these issues, the individual issues, uh, the story overall, of course, but also each individual issue.
4: In looking and looking back, like how did the SLG comics sell? What were the numbers there?
2: Issue one How's didn't reach eight thousand, as I recall, did not even reach eight thousand.
1: Yeah, I mean you know, I know it was a different era by a lot. Um, and you know, we didn't do multiple covers and SLG was a pretty obscure company, even relative to what dynamite is today. Um, the whole business was kind of different, but we were, um, throughout the run, the 12, well, the eight or so issues of Gargoyles that got published on a monthly or bimonthly basis. Um, we were SLG's number one bestselling comic. I may not mean much since SLG, um, you know, wasn't one of the top companies in those days, but just the fact that we were its bestseller, I think meant something. And I, uh, and Gargoyles bad guys was the, their number three bestseller. So our two titles were number one and number three. Um, back then, and there's something to be said for that um, because everything's relative. Obviously, you know there's a huge difference between 8k and 100k. <laughs> um, and it's a little inexplicable to me, but and it it's really exciting and really
2: frightening, all of the things. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. and with that news out of the way this this, this is dropping yeah okay this show is dropping on black friday so i want to wish i hope everyone had a nice thanksgiving and um you can listen to us while you're doing your shopping braving all those crowds trying not to catch covid while you get those deals on that playstation 5
4: yeah like you're gonna be able to get a playstation 5
2: <laughs> but first i would like to reintroduce our guest tuppence McIntyre and tuppence tell us a little bit about yourself how far back do you and greg go
0: way back greg and i go way way back um it's kind of amazing are farther back than she remembers Yes, that's very true. Did, did she block it out? Was it like Greg. a bad experience? Did she just—I <laughs> never remembered it accurately. Greg had to tell me all about it. I apparently—he was apparently not memorable when I met him first. <laughs> um, but uh, college era, um, I've actually known Greg longer than his wife, which is amazing, um, and. Um, did we meet it? We met in Pittsburgh, right?
1: Well, we talked on the phone once before try. that, but yeah, which you also, that's don't right. Know it, but I yes, remember we that. met in, we met in Pittsburgh. Um, my girlfriend <laughs> at the time, Peggy gold, and I drove down from Manhattan, uh, which is where we were living, uh, to, uh, Pittsburgh to stay with you and, uh, Cameron Douglas, who was one of my uh, college roommates. And uh, that's how we met through Cameron. I mean, she knows that. I'm telling you guys. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yes. I I remember uh, Peggy and the visit. I do remember you. I think it's unfair to say that I don't remember you at all. But yes, no, we go go way, way back. Um, Greg is a dear friend. And... um, he and his family have embraced me, and I now consider them my surrogate West Coast family uh, because I'm from the East Coast. So they take care of me for all holidays, you know, um, Rosh Hashanah and Thanksgiving and Christmas and everything. They always look out for me. It's absolutely lovely. Um, and I am anti-tap to Greg's Spence, which is pretty great.
2: That's, That's awesome! True. Very awesome. I love. Okay, so-, so
4: now, how did you wrangle her into uh, this? Is obviously, for Greg, how did you wrangle Tuppence into working Got on gargoyles it. with you? Uh,
1: well, we, I, I think I was. We were just. I mean, you know, we hung out all the time. Um, my wife Beth and I and Tuppence and and a small group of other friends as well, I suppose, but we hung out all the time. And I'm sure at some point I was just, I don't have a specific memory of this, but I, my assumption is, is that at some point I was just talking about what we were working on. And, um, and Tuffins kind of volunteered is my memory of it. Um, that this subject matter, uh, well, I'll let her talk about it, but it, it interested her enough that she sort of volunteered the, to get us some information.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I I have a memory of you calling me up, Greg, and us talking on the phone. And, yeah, and you (laughs) were uh, talking about Nick And I'm like, yes, Nick You know, we had a chat about that. And I think I pulled a book off my shelf and, like, looked at the genealogy and I'm like, and, you know, this son and, you know, this relationship and, you know, whatever, and you got completely jazzed about it. Um, so uh, I think I was probably known to you, Greg, as, as like, being interested in medieval history um, and architecture, medieval architecture as well. Um, so I just, you know, had a ton of books on the on those topics, and, you know, McIntyre, my last name is Scottish, and my dad's family is from the Inner Hebrides, um, so I've been to Scotland a lot. I, you know, was always very interested in the history. Um, so, uh, yes, I may have volunteered. I think I was like, hey, let me give you my stuff, or you asked for it or something, and so I sort of curated my books for you, Greg. <laughs> oh, he must have this book, he must have, look at, look at this book, and, you know, here's this, that, and the other thing. So I gave him quite the, the pile. We had another chat or two, you know, about the history. I gave him this big stack of books, um, and he uh, took that and, and went off running with it. Um, and I think he even, you know, sent copies of pages or whatever to his artists, you know, like the, the sort of the atmospheric feel that he wanted, uh, that he was, you know, interested in creating. So, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. And and I think, you know, Greg was always enthusiastic about gargoyles and was very enthusiastic to talk about uh, everything that I'd found. So there you are.
4: So you gave him homework and he did well with it.
0: <laughs> I gave him homework. <laughs> yes. He, <laughs> he's very good at that stuff. Um, and uh, But, you know, but we also, while we chatted about things, um, you know, we didn't, it's not like... Um, you know, I saw an early copy of the scripts or anything like that. Um, you know, Greg, you know, knew what he wanted, pulled what he wanted uh, from there. He had the books for a long time. He was working with them for a long time. Um, but, yeah, I'm very pleased. And uh, and then there's the Viking story, uh, how the Vikings became um, sort of visual characters. And Greg remembers it differently than me. But go ahead, Greg, on the Vikings
1: well, I mean, uh, in the, uh, pilot, the yeah, Vikings exactly. were thrown in, um, by, uh, Michael Reeves, um, who wrote that we had marauders in the original story that Paul Lacey and I came up with. I don't know what marauders means in any specific way other than bad guys, you know, um, uh, but, uh. Michael made them Vikings and I don't know if Michael made them Vikings cause he'd done research or it, or he just thought Vikings were cool. I know that was my response. It was like, Oh, Vikings are cool. That's cool. Let's have Vikings attack. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I hadn't done any research, uh, when we did it and I have a fairly clear memory of learning, um, that, oh, in fact, Vikings were attacking the west coast of Scotland in that era, 994-ish era A.D., you know, Um, and uh, being, like, really pleased that we hadn't gotten it wrong. I mean, I I felt like we'd gotten (laughs) it right by accident. Now, I don't remember at what point that happened, um, and it may very well be that, yeah, you know, what we then did had a lot to do with, uh, you know, visually. Had a lot to do with um, uh, the research that Tuppence did, but the the choice of Vikings was Michael's, that I I'm sure of. But no, uh, oh. uh, but I don't know what I don't remember <laughs> what uh, process we went through to make sure that the Vikings were depicted accurately. I just. Uh, was happy that they
0: were. I guess. Um, right. You like you the, more? With the horns. Right. Yes. You. You really like the the look of the helmets with the horns for the Vikings, or and you remember it being without horns. But you know, um, and I remember you chatting about uh, Vikings, and I'm like, you know, you wanted Vikings because they look so cool, and I'm like, well, you know, happily. <laughs> That's what was happening all over Scotland at that time. And it really was an accident. I thought that was just hilarious because, you know, I, I, I don't think I ever spoke to Michael about any of his um, choices for his stories. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't speak with Greg about, you know, who should the marauders be. But I thought that was great that they got it right.
1: Yeah, that was, but that was also the fact that we got it right was became an inspiration for what went forward, because having gotten it right by accident once, <laughs> we were then fairly determined to not squander that opportunity to sort of say, okay, let's play our little fantasy show within the realm of known history. You know, in other words, let's not just make stuff up, let's um, let's weave it into the history um, with the idea that being, okay, you know, The winners are the ones who write the history books, so they're not going to credit the gargoyles with anything because they killed all the gargoyles, right? So they're going to make it seem like uh, gargoyles were myths or they didn't exist. They're not going to sit there and go, oh, yeah, gargoyles won the war, but, uh, you know, (laughs) I mean, they're not going to admit to that. So, you know, we tried... There were certain dates, for example, that um, the books that Tuppence gave me had Some of the dates were fixed, like pretty specific, sometimes down literally to the, um, time of day, as well as the month and the day of a given year. And other times, you know, a birth date for a certain character, they might have like a five to 10 year range. Like this character was born sometime between here and here. And that gave us some flexibility, um, You know, in other words, where the history book didn't know how old the character was, I would pick a date within that range that worked for us. Um, But, uh, you know, any date that history seemed to know, we would live with. And then the thing that was even, so all that was great, but what was even better is, is that when we start hearing these stories, you know, I came into the show very familiar with Shakespeare's Macbeth, and not even a little bit familiar with the historical Macbeth. And once we start hearing the stories of Macbeth or later Kenneth, the second Kenneth, the third and all this stuff that eventually played out in later episodes and comic book issues of Gargoyles, those stories were so great. It was like, well, why wouldn't we want to use that stuff? These are fantastic stories. So, it just became a boon to the series because we could both be, historically speaking, relatively accurate within our fantasy context, but also we were able to just take advantage of these great little-known stories, um, which to most of our audience, I assume there's one or two medievalists who saw the show, maybe, who were like really impressed. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to most of our audience, it was just new. You know, it's like, hey, you know, what if you stumbled? What if you'd never heard of the Greek myths, and then you stumbled on a show that took advantage of Greek myths? You'd be like, wow, this is great stuff. Uh, and and you, it makes me look brilliant when all I'm doing is rating <laughs> uh, actual <laughs> history stories.
0: Shakespeare rated history too. It's totally fine. Everybody does it.
2: I was about to say, shout out to longtime Gargoyles fan, Todd Jensen, who is a medievalist and who was impressed by it.
4: (laughs) I was just thinking of
1: Todd. Oh, (laughs) my gosh.
2: (laughs) Hopefully he'll hear this at some point. (laughs) Well, also,
1: I'm hoping that we inspired a few people here and there to, you know, I know we inspire some people to read Shakespeare. I hope we inspire some people to read history, you know, to get interested in very history that we were both utilizing and to a certain extent abusing. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the hope is that, you know, we're just telling a great story, but wouldn't it be lovely if it made someone say, I, I want to learn more. Um, and uh, then hopefully they did.
2: I did and I did. <laughs> so yeah, thank you I, for I, that. I
4: can think of a lot of people that really like, dove into it after that. It sparked Good. people's curiosity.
2: Mm-hmm. I think we should move into the episode itself. We'll circle back to the history when we, when we get to the flashback, but I love the opening for this episode, both opening scenes. One is chilling, and the other one is funny and chilling. I mean, you don't hear Xanatos gasp very often. And, of course, how like it is it for Brooklyn to not know what Elisa's nose actually looks like. What was he looking at?
4: <laughs> She's just got one of those weird human noses, like, he doesn't know.
1: <laughs> I, I view that as a commentary on um, artistic criticism in general, which is that, you know, it, it happens very often that someone will say, well, that's just wrong, you know, that the nose is totally off. What in fact it's exactly right because it's in fact her <laughs> um, you know, and many times I get people who speak very definitively and objectively about something that they clearly know nothing about. <laughs> um, and uh so, You mean on the internet? Uh, it's even
4: yeah it's No, no one on internet, the internet would do that. Never.
1: <laughs> Jennifer, I hate to tell you, but uh <laughs> <laughs> I no, I you, mean, Craig. I, really I feel I feel that way <laughs> more now, obviously, even than I did then. But uh, I love that line specifically because, it, to me, that's really emblematic of artistic criticism, which is that, yeah, sometimes it's valid. Um, you know, Lex is like, that's pretty good this," And Orca's like, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, come on, that's awful. When, in <laughs> fact, it's her. You know,
2: so I just love that line. It's probably one of my favorite lines in the entire series it's a great line <laughs> and those all wrong <laughs> and i love that goliath instinctually realizes something is wrong he has no reason to think that and yet he's got good judgment he's got good instincts
4: yes he's he realizes there's something really not right here um yeah it was i i loved how he handled that whole thing like he He knew something was up his his spidey sense was tingling, and he left a guard for
1: Elisa and they went out. I think it's interesting who he left, in other words, we kind of established, yeah, that Broadway I mean leaving Bronx behind is typical Bronx can't fly, blah blah, blah. We do that all the time. Um, Nate Cosby wouldn't be happy, but yes, we left Bronx behind um and <laughs> Uh, But leaving Broadway, because normally it's Hudson, right? Usually it's Hudson who guards the castle or guards the clock tower. But this time he left Broadway. And to me, I feel like, again, that's part of the whole Goliath, like you said, Spidey sense tingling, you know, that instinct, which is, you know, not that Hudson wouldn't protect her. But Broadway has, and we've established this sort of a, a special brotherly affection for Elisa and feels very, very protective of her since he, you know, accidentally shot her with a gun, right? So, um, (laughs) uh, you know, so I feel like his decision to leave Broadway had a lot to do with with his own feeling like, okay, I need to go out there and find out what's going on. So if I'm not going to be here to guard Elisa, I want someone who, and this is when he's still thinking it's a statue on the surface of his brain, right? But like you said there's something not right about this you know um and it wasn't her nose yeah and so he leaves broadway as opposed to any of the others
2: and then we bring back jeffrey robbins and in a brilliant way i might add i mean that scene just accomplishes so much it reestablishes his friendship with hudson and we learn a little bit a little bit about the rules of magic
1: Right, yeah, we wanted to make sure that... Um, I mean, it was something that Michael and I... Um, maybe Brendan and Lydia, too, I can't remember. Uh, uh, but certainly Michael and I uh, talked about a lot, which is that we just we didn't want magic to be a, a writerly crutch. You know, whatever the writer needs it to be at any given moment, that's what magic is. You know, there had to be rules in the Gargoyles universe for how magic worked. Um, you know, you can't just pop something into existence, um, with mortal magic and, um, without there being conditions and, and all this stuff. And so the idea that you'd have to see and hear a spell and that therefore a deaf person or a blind person would be immune, um, was interesting to us. And, and, uh, and then of course, you know, this worked out perfectly since we'd introduced Um, Jeffrey Robbins um, in an earlier episode, even though this was the episode we started working on first, I would think. This was a four-parter, so we were working on this um, for some longer period of time. Um, But I think referring back to the old memos, you know, Robbins' role here was just some blind man they meet on the street kind of thing. Um, but by that, by the time we got to actually scripting the episode, we had, uh, introduced Robbins, uh, in a prior episode. And so obviously that's who we were going to use here. And uh, and of course it was great to get Paul Woodfield back in the, in the booth. You know, that was probably some plus to have someone that did. So why
0: did, why did you have, uh, Demona at, Chanting in Latin. Your choice is Latin, as opposed to Gaelic or something else. Do you have a, uh, uh, so a decision
1: there? It, um, we usually so the the book she the page that she's reading off of is a book to, torn from the Grnor Arcanorum, which was an old uh, Latin book of spells. So all, the, in other words, it predated. Um, mm-hmm its arrival in, in Celtic lands. You know, it came from uh, Rome in, uh, you know, B.C. times, you know, um, mm-hmm. Roman Empire, Augustus, and that. We, we had, the book existed before it got to um, Northern Europe. Um, and so anytime we did a spell from the Grimoram, we would use, uh, Latin, but, uh, you know, we did, uh, spelled in Hebrew when that was appropriate. I feel like we did some Gaelic stuff in, the uh, Banshee episode that comes in down the road. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I have a vague memory that we used, we always wanted to use a, a less current language you know um, yeah. and uh, uh, but for the Grimoire, and this was a page that Demona had stolen from the Grimoire in an earlier episode, for the Grimoire, we always use Latin
2: I do want to ask one question about how magic works and this is a question I've seen a lot because some people were a little bit confused you need to see and hear magic for it to touch you so Let's say supposedly the Archmage was standing in front of Jeffrey Robbins and pulled his Fominos Venite lightning. Uh, would he be immune?
1: Not from the lightning bolt, but he you couldn't, you couldn't turn Jeffrey
2: into a lightning bolt.
1: You know, In other words, um, would about... be,
4: he wouldn't be immune to the effects of what happens due to the magic, right. but he, the magic itself couldn't affect him.
1: Right. In other words, the Archmage summons a lightning bolt magically, but the lightning bolt is a lightning bolt, so it hits him. You know, it's like if you summon, if you turn someone to stone and then you tilt the stone over and it hits Jeffrey Robbins on the head, he's going to get a bump. Um, Of course. He's not going to turn to stone himself, but but the results, you know, of the magic... um, could still affect him. Does that make sense? I mean, is that clear?
2: I know it's it very—it's it, very clear. I know it, it was, makes sense. Yeah, it was very—it was very clear. It was clear, clear to, <laughs> it was clear to me. I'm just asking for the people out there that have asked. Well, that. like,
4: <laughs> uh, you you summon rain with magic, and he could still get wet. Right. You know.
1: Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So still get wet. But yeah. yeah, if you said I'm turning you into a rain cloud, that wouldn't work. Um. So it's, that's the difference. It's one thing to cast the spell onto something. It's another thing to be affected by the results of the spell.
2: And then I love how the next scenes play out, how urgent it gets. And and we're talking about Goliath, how Goliath previously assigned Broadway to protect Elisa's statue. He instinctively makes sure that he keeps Brooklyn at his side once they know what's going on. I love that. He keeps him on a real short lead there. Yeah, I mean,
1: Brooklyn isn't subtle about how he's feeling about Demona, you know. Um, He is, uh, as soon as her name comes up, he's sort of knee-jerk, ready to punch her lights out, you know, kind of thing. Um, And so it's hard for Goliath to miss that. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the the things about Goliath's leadership style is he knows his people. Um, He knows his people. He knows their strengths and their weaknesses, um, and, uh, delegates, you know, with all that in mind. Um, I mean, I think it's a great kind of moment too, where he tells Hudson and Lex, I want you guys hunting in pairs. I don't want anyone out on their own. Um, and I want you to stop by the clock tower and have Broadway and Bronx go out looking too. And, you know, Lex is like, "Well, well, what about Elisa? You leave. And, that's really her. Now we know that's really her. And Goliath is like, yeah, but Demona doesn't know where she is. So she's as safe there as anywhere. Priority has to be finding Demona, And so he even is prepared to take a calculated risk with, um, Elisa's safety. Um, because now that he's got, uh, a handle on what's going on, um, you know, he's on top of things. Uh, I mean, Brooklyn says, you know, big city, how are we going to find her? And Goliath is thinking, unfortunately, that is not going to be the big problem. And in fact, it's not because what they do is they follow her trail of destruction, um, across the city until they finally, uh, catch up to where she sort of stopped
2: at, uh, at
1: Media
4: Studios. Literally following a trail of bodies.
2: A trail of corpses. Yeah.
4: For a Disney mm-hmm. afternoon. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> yes. Let's, let's talk about this because you have villains often talk about it, threaten it, and I understand for most TV shows there's this thing called standards and practices where the Joker can gas someone on Batman the Animated Series but he can't actually kill them. We hear we hear things implied through a character's reputation, but Demona enters a very small pantheon of animated TV villains who is actually an on-screen mass murderer here. Is that a question? Because it's true. I mean... <laughs> no, it's not a question at all. What was, it was... the
1: question? <laughs> I'm...
2: Yeah, and I so remember funny. the first time I watched this. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched this way back in 1995, I even though they were turned to stone, I almost couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just such a chilling scene and and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. She that woman with the bags. Did she wake <laughs> up at arms? sunrise? The arms.
4: So what happens to a woman with no arms at sunrise?
1: It's not pretty. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah, like it, yeah. it I mean it, the whole thing was very morbid. And, and surprised me, but like, uh, it was so perfectly Demona and I just, it's really well done.
1: I mean, look, if we had been doing this as a network show, we probably would not have been able to get away with that stuff. Um, but we were syndicated and, um, and we had a S and P executive, Adrian Bellow, who I've mentioned before, who was, uh really understood what we were trying to do and, and still tried to rein us in sometimes. (laughs) Um, Tried, you know, you know, so she was like, not, she understood that we needed to show Demona doing this, but she said not too many on screen. You know, the implication that she had done more, that's fine, but not too many on screen. And one of the big reasons we couldn't do it at all was because obviously it wasn't imitatable behavior. You know, you can't, It's one thing, if you show someone stab someone with a knife or shoot someone with a gun, or in theory, impressionable people, whether children or otherwise, could watch that, think it's cool, horribly, and imitate that behavior, but they don't have the ability to magically turn their enemies to stone and then smash them,
0: right? Um, That that is a fair point. I think that's a really great distinction. Right, and that
1: was the distinction that allowed us to get away with this. I mean, one of the things that I love, even just the title of these four episodes, "City of Stone," you know, was was just a, it's a great title because you just have all the, you know, and most of a big chunk of every one of these four episodes is set in the past, and yet "City of Stone" still works for the whole thing because you've just turned all these people, the stone, the the streets are quiet. You know, um, when Goliath and Brooklyn and Hudson and Lex fly away from the clock tower from above, initially they can't tell what's going on. They're not hearing sirens. They're not, you know, until they get land, you know, and then it becomes, you know, bizarrely clear that something's wrong and it's way too quiet. And it's that quiet that we tried to get across as much as possible. Um, but yeah, you know, Adrian in essence said, okay, it's not imitatable. You can do it, but let's not do too much of it. And so at one point she was like, um, can we do just one less blowing up the body? <laughs> like you need those ones, no. the and I get it. You, you want those two at the end but let's do one less in the middle. And so, so her, she, she lost like, her arms. So she blows off the packages, but of course the packages are attached to her hand. And, um, and so we're like, oh, that's okay. And she's like, yeah, that's better. And, 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 you know, Frank and I are looking at each other like, cool. All right. we We can live with that. You know, trying to not, <laughs> give away our bloodthirsty glee over <laughs> that decision because you know obviously if you think about it for more than a second it's way worse yeah. um, but uh, you know you kind of have to have a bit of a sick mind and I don't think Adrienne had a sick mind so she didn't see it um, <laughs> um, or if she did she sort of you know, let it slide. Um, and, um, and you know, I also, you know, a little kid maybe wouldn't get it, wouldn't get the implications of it. And that's sort of the concern, you know, it's like, again, as always, we want to write on layers. So yeah, for an adult audience, they see that and they're like, Oh man, that's horrific. But a kid might just think, Oh, okay. Um, I guess, I don't know, but. Uh, but as always, you know, Frank and Michael and and Bryn Lydia, you know, everyone working on this, you know, we're just making the show we want to make, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then crossing our fingers that our audience, including our target audience and six to 11-year-olds, um, will be with us. Uh, and, you know, working again to write on layers so that we're not leaving that audience out of the shenanigans but uh um but still you know we were making the kind of show we wanted to see when we were six to eleven or you know 20 to 40 <laughs> is what we were <laughs> <at the time.
0: laughs>
4: now we we also see her destroy what is clearly to us brendan and margot but then we see brendan and margot
1: later yeah, it just it wasn't Brendan and Margot. You know, it was just someone with similar. I mean, I actually looked at it last night, and I thought that actually doesn't really look that much like Brendan. It's just the fact that they're a couple, and that woman has the same hairstyle as Margot, with that same sort of hairband that Margot has, or whatever it is. Uh, it's it's Brenda so, and Marco yeah, from Witch. Yeah, maybe it comes off as Brendan and Margot, but. And I get it, it does, but it just wasn't, and it was never meant to be them. I think what, you know, obviously happened, if I'm out of the universe, is that, um, you know, someone wanted to save time, so they just grabbed the Brendan and Margo models and stoned them up and sent them overseas. Um, But uh, we had never, I mean, if you looked at the actual script, it doesn't say Brendan and Margo get shot. And that was never the intent. And we weren't going to get rid of Brendan and Margo for that reason. And again, because they're stone-colored, um, I feel just fine saying, yeah, no, it wasn't Brendan or Margo. It was two different people. Um, and uh, the proof is is that you see Brendan and Margo later just fine.
2: One more commentary about this scene. In a lot of ways, as chilling as it is, it also highlights Damona's short-term Thinking this isn't advancing anything for gargoyles or what's left of gargoyles. This isn't about protecting her people. This is just stone cold, gleeful, murderous revenge. That's all it is. She's really not gaining anything from this. This is just madness. Right, and it is. I mean, even in even when you think about numbers,
1: you know, um, this isn't a good plan for destroying the human race or even all the humans in Manhattan, like she tried to get Puck to do for her. Right. Um, this is, I mean, God knows she must've destroyed a lot of statues. Right. But when you think about it, relative to the number of people who live in Manhattan, I'm sure the number was relatively low. Um, I mean, horrible. Don't want to, understate how just how horrible it is but if what your goal is is the complete genocide of the human race this is a horrible way to go about it right i mean you're going to you know if you alone are the only person you're you're going to somehow go and kill billions of people this way um it it would take you forever. Now, she's immortal, so maybe she would enjoy it. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it would never get old. (laughs) But, uh, you know, again, it's an incredibly inefficient system if your goal, as she's stated many times, is the complete genocide of the human race. This is a very inefficient way of doing it. But she sure is having fun, isn't she? Yeah, she's definitely enjoying herself petty revenge and, and just having a good time, I guess, in her sick way. <laughs> but it's not practical, which, again, I love, you know, because that's Demona. It's, it's like you said, Greg, It's on one level, it's fairly short-sighted. Um, but, you know, I'm sure she'd enjoy the terror that it was causing during the day. And uh, and then the carnage she could wreak at night,
2: and, you know, along those lines, I guess. Mm-hmm. And now we can flash back to 11th century Scotland, and we get this cool fight with the hunter and uh, Demona, who still hasn't been named yet. But um, I'm sure this is something that's come up before, so we're going to bring it up here. We've talked about the, how cool the design of the hunter's mask is. It also matches Gilcom scars scars no one noticed
1: um, you know I there are a couple answers to that. One is is that of course someone must have noticed um, and you know it becomes uh it's a Clark Kent sort of thing you know I mean it's like you know if the Hunter's mask have the same scars as Gilcom game maybe Gilcom game's the hunter yeah, but you know that'd be pretty dumb of him, don't you think? But then if you go on to the later S.L.D. comics, you see that, um, the design for those, the design for those, uh, for that mask was really inspired by, um, King Constantine, who was in turn inspired by Gilcombe Gaines' scars. But once you know that, once you've gotten that bit of backstory, um, that, you know, Constantine was sort of the Ur-Hunter, um, the proto-Hunter, however you want to describe it. Um, then, you know, the fact that someone is now wearing that mask, um, they're like, oh, well, I modeled it after Constantine, not Gilgamesh game Scars. And then some, you know, pedant is going to step up and go, well, you know, King Constantine modeled those his war paint after he game scars. That's what inspired Constantine. Okay, great. You know, whatever. <laughs> Thanks nerd. Um, but <laughs> I, I think the, the point is, is that, uh, um, that image of the three, uh, slashes by this time is part of the Scottish record that we've established in the series. And so, um, Yeah, it's not the greatest mystery in the world. Who's the guy with the scar mask? Oh, maybe it's the guy with the exact same scars on his face. But no one's sure. And there are plenty of reasons to think it might be someone other than Gang. And if it is him, all right, well, he's a dangerous guy, so maybe I just keep my mouth shut.
2: That's a very good point. Nice. And now we get some more historical figures, which is one of the reasons why we invited Tup and san. We get to meet, again, Bodhi, a somewhat older Macbeth than last time, 12 years older. And they talk about the politicking of King Dun- Prince Duncan, he's Prince at this point, ordering, grew to marry Gilkin Gane. And I love how Bodhi plays it and then loses it.
1: Yeah, I don't know, tough how much you remember the specifics of what was in there. Again, I, I think we used the facts that the books gave us, and then, um, you know, that, those became solid. We knew that Garak married Gilcom Gain first before she married Macbeth. We knew that. Um, but, uh, you know, what the relationships were, what the emotions were that we felt free to sort of make suit our storytelling. So the idea that Grock and Macbeth were in love and that, yeah, Bodie initially talks tough, like, sorry, Macbeth, we're going with the other guy until Macbeth says, well, fine, we'll run away. And he's like, no, no, please, please. You know, um, is very Bodie esque in terms of our interpretation of Bodie, um, but you know, I, I have no idea whether historical Bodie might have been a badass. For all I know, I have no idea. Um, but uh, I don't know what you remember, tough about that section. Uh,
0: I I do remember uh, that, and um, you know, it's it's pretty common in um, you know medieval politics to uh, marry the um, you know the widowed the uh, the woman who's left behind and to sort of bestow legitimacy and um, you know there really wasn't love involved in all of these marriages for the most part um, so it's lovely that Greg added that uh, element there I think that's and it and it moves the story along beautifully. So
1: we wanted there to, obviously there's an element of tragedy of Macbeth's story, uh, even our version of it, um, as opposed to Shakespeare's and, and, uh, so this notion of Gruach and that's, being married off to a man. She doesn't love You know that. Um, even, I mean, we have no idea whether that was true of the real Gruach. you know, for all we know, she was madly in love with Gilcom game, but, Again, the marriage wasn't about love. It was about politics. Um, now, uh, and the without a doubt whether it was true about her specifically, we all know there were and have been over the centuries many, many women who were forced into a marriage with someone they had no uh, feelings for, might even have extremely negative feelings for. Um, that is not an uncommon thing in human history at all. So it, it it felt true enough, you know. I mean, historically, she married Gilcombe Gang first. Then when he died, she married Macbeth. And in terms of who was the, uh, you know, Ran Moray, Clan Moray, it was Finlay, who was Macbeth's own father first, then Gilcombe Gang, then Macbeth, in that order. And so, again, with the facts, we stuck to them. But with the emotions, we felt liberated to play these characters the way it fit our story. And what was sort of lovely is that those two things, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, which is that when Gargoyles was really humming, everything just seemed to fit together so organically. Um, Almost as if, you know, we were tapping into some alternate universe where gargoyles did exist in Scottish history or did exist and it all seemed to fit work. Um, and you know, when it, the story seems to write itself, you know, you're on the right track. The only way I can put it. And this one did felt that way. I mean,
2: for a little bit more history, someone we don't meet here, but, um, it seems like Duncan has a lot of authority for someone who's still just a prince that the king I, assume, when, I think it was Malcolm II at that time gave him a lot of authority here. So was there ever a cha- was there ever any moments where um King Malcolm II almost showed up in this series and this miniseries? I know he shows up in on Aval- um, part 1, but
1: <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think by the time we got to the outline, I think what in early discussions when we were going over the history Michael and and Lydia, and I, we talked about including, um, the guy who we eventually refer to as Mal Calvo um, or Malcolm the second. Um, and we talked about having him in there. Uh, and then we just felt, I think by the time we got to the outline stage that, uh, we had enough characters we were introducing and we wanted to keep it tight and not overwhelm the audience and not overwhelm the storytelling by including too many, um, characters that didn't, that we didn't immediately need. And so we could allow Duncan in essence to stand in for both himself and his father. Um, and Grandfather. grandfather, 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 right. Sorry. Um, we don't refer to him as King until he is King. Right. You know, the history is still the history. He was just prince during this time. But he was the crown prince, so you figured he was, um, you know, the guy in line to take over the throne, and that would give him a lot of authority. And people, I suppose, in theory, um, could have, uh, you know, pleaded their case to the king. But, um, you know, if you're Gilcombe game, gang uh, and you've got to hold you know, over the prince, because you know something that if the world found out about it would get the prince in a lot of trouble, Um, then, you know, you don't want to go to the king. You're holding on to that information. And Macbeth is just, in this episode, he's just uh, manipulated. I mean, he's manipulated to kill the man who, in fact, did kill his father. But... Uh, and then Gilcombe Gain can't resist, you know, rubbing salt in the wound and thus confirming what Duncan has said, right? Um, But uh, for all Macbeth knew when he first showed up there, if he had thought about it, Duncan could have been lying to him and Gilcombe Gain could have been completely innocent. I mean, that's not the case, obviously. But, you know, when you think about it, if Duncan had wanted to get rid of Gilcom Gain, Macbeth was, you know, pre uh really primed to dislike Gilcom Gain because Gilcom Gain married the girl that he loved. So then you say this guy who married the girl that you loved and took Clan Moray from you, uh, also is the guy who killed your father. Macbeth's not prone to say, Really? Him? You know, <laughs> he's prone to say
2: I'll take care of it. You know. <laughs> Some someone else we meet at the saddest wedding before George R. R. Martin came along is we meet a. <laughs> are we allowed to make red wedding jokes in 2022?
4: <laughs> always, always. I
2: think so. All right, we meet an infant to history calls Malcolm, although you end up calling the baby Canmore. So, uh, in that name resonates throughout the rest of the series we'll get to that later but and tuppence please feel free to chime in here where did that name come from
0: yeah so canmore in gaelic means big head um so it was first assigned to somebody who must have had a remarkably large head um but um, I think history has uh, Canmore and Malcolm as uh, interchangeable, and Canmore becomes Malcolm, so I think that's, that's actually after.
4: Nice. Right. And,
0: and you're welcome to the Gaelic collection.
1: Our, our problem um, was that we had named um, Prince Canmore, a fictional character that we added as Prince the Malcolm younger mean. brother of...
2: Prince Malcolm, you mean? You said Prince Canmore. Yes, you did.
1: Uh, <laughs> Prince Malcolm. We had created Prince Malcolm in season one as the father of Princess Catherine. That is, as a fictional addition to the royal family. A younger brother who died relatively young. I mean, not too young to have a daughter, but uh, relatively young. Um, a younger brother to... Kenneth the third. Am I right? Kenneth the third. Right. Yes. Um, so having named him Malcolm, which was a good, from our point of view, Scottish name, seemed to fit. Um, we then came up against all these other characters named Malcolm. We thought this was going to get so confusing. <laughs> so, for example, because this Malcolm that we're talking about now also had the nickname Canmore, um, like, okay, we're not saying that he wasn't Malcolm we're just saying that most people referred to him as Canmore so that's the name we'll use uh and so it's not a historical it's not wrong we it just isn't the complete story we're just not going to mention the fact that his quote unquote christian name was Malcolm and that Canmore was something more of a nickname it, it also occurred to me that maybe he was called big head because um it was what his Mom felt when she gave birth to him. Um, that he had an unusually <laughs> large head as a baby. Is it too it late was, to
4: change um, Sydney's name to Kenmore?
2: <laughs> <laughs> she might go for it. Hey, you've got Fox. That's two names from the show, then.
1: That's between you and your daughter. Her, so. um, and then, you know, when we were dealing with... Uh, Duncan's grandfather, whose name was also Malcolm. We used the more Gaelic Mal for him. Um, again, be, just because we had too many Malcolms in the show. Um, so if we could find a different yet historically accurate name for these, for Malcolm, for our second Malcolm and third Malcolm, I don't mean Malcolm, the <laughs> second Malcolm, the third, I mean, for the second and third Malcolms that we had in the show, that's what we did. And so that's why we went with the Canmore name as if it was his name. Um, when in fact, we knew his name was Malcolm, but Canmore was a very useful uh, nickname for us. And it also paid off later because the idea is that then the Canmore line is the line of hunters down the road. So, um, you wind up way down the road we'll get to these characters eventually but with jason canmore and robin canmore and john canmore and fiona canmore and all the entire canmore clan
0: more
4: canmores than you can shake a stick at
2: right and uh i suppose we should talk a little bit about that marriage i love the uh how Gilgamesh crushes that rose beneath his boot. But I'm wondering something, and this character doesn't show up until the next episode, but we've got the Scottish historian here. So, um, Luwak. Who is his father?
0: Luwak. I have no idea. Um, okay, so sorry. Luwak uh, is, in history, I thought it was Malcolm's son, and he actually reigned for, like, 30 seconds, and then got booted off the phone, off the be thrown after his father. But I thought it was Malcolm.
1: No, he was. Right? No, he's not Malcolm's son. I'm he's
0: sorry, not, not Malcolm, Malcolm McBash. I'm sorry, say it again.
1: So he's, in theory, what the history books say is that Lou Locke, with a second L, and that is just our mistake. I don't know how that happened, but his uh, name is Lou Locke in the history books. Somehow we just Fucked that up. <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't know if it was like the Gruok luwak thing. Um, we thought, oh, they rhyme. I get it. Okay, or whatever. But we just blew that. Um, but other it's than it's fine. That- it's fine. The Scots swallow
0: their middle consonants. It's fine.
1: That's right. There you go. That's exactly. Historically,
0: right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but
1: here's the, the thing is that historically, uh, Lulock was, uh, the son of, uh, Gilcom Gane, but who was adopted by Macbeth so that he was also the son of Macbeth. Now, the thing that we sort of posited, because you look again at, uh, Lulock's or Lulock's, uh, doesn't have a birth year. He has a birth year range in the history book and that range included him being born after, um, Gilcom death, which I thought was interesting and implied something to me that, um, okay. Uh, in theory, this was Gilcom Gain's son, because if you do the nine month math, right. Uh, then clearly Gilcom game died here if you go back nine months, that's before that. Maybe, uh, maybe Macbeth was always really his father. Maybe the reason Macbeth adopted this kid so readily was because he thought, Mm -hmm. this is my kid. Um, and the thing I used to sort of posit based on what we read in the books is that the implication might've been that, uh, when Gilcom Gain was alive, there was a lot of rumors about that this uh, pregnancy, this kid was really Macbeth's kid. Then after Gilcom Gain died and Macbeth and Grock get married and Lou is born, there are rumors all about, you know, and Macbeth adopts him. Then the rumors become, well, this isn't really Macbeth's kid. This is Gilcom Gain's kid. In other words, people are horrible <laughs> you just, <yeah. laughs> that, you know, who, no one is going to sit there and go, oh yes, this is all on the up and up, but the, that, around the, the court, so to speak, it's always the negative version of it. Oh, grew the, slept with the other guy before the first guy was even dead or, oh, that's not really his kid. We don't have to respect him. You know, he's the kid of the dead guy, that hunter. You know, um, but uh, from the, what we wanted to posit is that any way you shake it, Macbeth loved Grukh so much that that kid, whether he has two L's in his name or one, he loved <laughs> as his own son, and we treated him as his own son, and we had had Jeff Bennett play young Macbeth. So we had Jeff Bennett play uh, Luak, um, when once Luach gets older uh, so that uh, we could make that connection even a little stronger and just imply that it was really um, Macbeth's son. Because for all intents and purposes, in our show, it was.
0: So I think I'll add, um, it was very, very common for high born sons, um, to be brought up in, uh, other courts and, um, you know, not in your parents' court, uh, but in somebody else's, um, very common and, um, you know, and, of course, if you raise a child, you know, to, like, uh, a, his teens, then you become very attached to that kid. So it's very common to do that. So uh, in medieval times and, you know, sons didn't spend a whole lot of time, you know, with their true parents or whatever. So there may be something there, too, uh, but that may have happened.
1: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> That fight scene then is you, also. Go I want on. to
1: talk about that rose for just a second because that rose was very calculated on our part. You know, um, we wanted to play this moment where she's with the rose. She's clearly thinking about Macbeth. Um, then you know, he basically orders her away, so she puts the rose down and she leaves. Right, and he picks up the rose and he smells it. And for a second, what we wanted was the audience to maybe sympathize with him. We know she's in love with Macbeth. We've established that. And so for a second, you think, you know, this guy's married to a woman who doesn't love him. And she is, he's a sympathetic figure. And then he drops the rose on the ground and crushes <laughs> it, And it's like, no, no, <laughs> no, not, never you. mind. <laughs> Don't worry about this guy. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> we're going to kill him off in a few minutes and it's just fine. <laughs> uh,
2: and then we get another very great choreographed fight scene. I just love it. And and like you just said, if there's any doubt that Gilkin gains the scumbag, it's when he takes screw hostage. Yeah. Yeah. This is not we'll also, guy. let's be honest, he's probably pregnant <laughs> at that moment also. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a good guy.
4: No. Yeah. Definitely I'm, not.
2: And I even love the way Demona is used during that fight. So you can tell she's clearly not in her prime because in some ways he out her and, and the tide turns when she grabs the torch. Well, it's not a torch. Uh, what, the, the brazier. Lantern, the brazier, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a... You know, we'd shown them fighting earlier and then, you know, the sun comes up, interrupts that fight. But, you know, you definitely feel like I mean, one thing that was nice is that the Demona model was at least consistent throughout. Right. <laughs> I mean, suppose the last episode where... It was all over uh, the place. much. Uh, but here, at least, it was consistent. Um, you know, she's young. Um, in the modern-day stuff, she's clearly older in the uh, 1032 stuff, right? So, great. Um, that helped Make it clearer. But... Uh, <laughs> You know what you're also seeing is that yeah you know this Demona at that age you know it's a it's anyone's guess who would win that fight um, and when you throw in complications like Macbeth and Gruok into the mix um, then you know all bets are off. The thing that I always thought didn't quite work animation wise is that when. Uh, Gil Gain and uh, Demona go over the side of the castle. What we had asked for was that Gilcom Gain wasn't holding on to her by her leg, but by her wing. Ooh. Oh. And the reason for that was, okay, because if she loses her grip, if Macbeth doesn't save her and pull her up, right? Then with him holding onto that wing, they're both going to fall to their deaths, right? Whereas that's clearly high enough that if they start to fall, she should be able to glide in for at least some kind of decent landing, right? Even with her holding him holding the leg, right?
0: Yeah. I did catch that. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: and It came back, and again, I cannot remember, was this a board problem? Was this an animation problem? Um, All I know is it came back, and it wasn't the wing. It was the leg that he's holding on to. And it, again, became one of these things where on the kind of schedules we were on, there was no ability for us to fix that. So you just have to sort of buy into the notion that he's heavy enough and she's old enough that... that she's really at risk here, um, but I wish it had been how we originally conceived it, so that um, you know you have tremendous clarity about why she would not have survived this if think Macbeth hadn't intervened to save her.
4: Yeah, I um, feel like that just like that just makes me cringe. Just that idea, like ooh. I think that right. would have been and that really was good. the
1: idea is is that, but we didn't get it. You know it you know i I feel like at least once an episode, I'm bitching about something we didn't quite get. Uh, overall, I think it all works, but I think you know, there's certain things we weren't perfect, and we didn't always have as much time, let alone money, as we would have liked and and uh, so you know, there were limitations, and uh, so this was one where uh, it didn't quite come off the way we wanted. But I think it works well enough. Well enough. Not great, but well enough. You get the basic idea of it. But there isn't the kind of clarity I would have liked to have seen.
2: The meat of the scene, though, is when she takes off his mask and he, he, in a way, almost taunts her and asks if she remembers, and then she says no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
4: You He's built a whole personality scratched- about, like, be- these scars on his face, man.
1: <laughs> yeah. you got to figure she's just scratched a whole bunch of people over the years. <laughs> 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 it's impossible for her to remember just one. You know, you know, which one were you? It's a lot of the boys and in barns. The guy the hayloft or the guy in the barn or the guy uh, up on the hill. or uh, Give me a little help. A little more help, you know. No, she doesn't care. She doesn't remember. She doesn't care. We lo- love that moment. I mean, that moment when everything in his life is built
0: in <laughs> this moment,
1: and her response is, "No, I don't, I don't remember you. You're nothing to me." Um, and he just goes berserk. You know, that's more infuriating than anything she could have said. That um, he meant nothing, because you're right. And she built. He built this entire persona. Around these scars, and he doesn't
4: care. <laughs> she don't. She just doesn't.
2: <laughs> that is almost uh, makes me think about the grudges some of our heroic characters hold against certain villains. Lexington hates the Pack. Brooklyn hates Demona. Broadway hates Dracon. The Pack. I don't think think about Lexington if they think about any go- gargoyle. It's Goliath. Ditto with. Uh, Demona, I doubt she thinks all that much about Brooklyn. She's fixed it on Goliath and Elisa. And with Dracon, I don't even think he knows which Gargoyle is Broadway because if he thinks about any of them, it's either, it's Goliath, but mostly his nemesis is Elisa. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I think there's an aspect of this, and I, you know, this is obviously a theme of this entire four-parter, which is this aspect of, as Vantos would say, you know, vengeance is a sucker's game. Um, and you know, it, it's a it's dopey, <laughs> I mean, it, it's been a driving force, I'm sure for much of human history and it's pretty damn stupid. Um, and, uh, that was definitely the big theme for the entire four parter is that is in essence vengeance is a suckers game. This guy has spent his life about this vengeance and the person who wronged him from his point of view doesn't, literally doesn't remember the incident. You know, she wants vengeance for what he's done because of what she did. But she doesn't remember the incident at all. The inciting incident to his personal tragedy. And that's just infuriating to him. Also, it's shocking to him. You know, in other words, He had, he, in his mind, she was his ultimate nemesis, right? And that's been true for the last, I don't know, eight years or so, 12 years or so, because he, as the hunter, has been killing gargoyles, right? But, um, and she's the one he's sort of failed to kill. Um, But he's imagined that it's been true since he was a kid. Or a teenager, at least. And in fact, she didn't give him two thoughts. One thought.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Ain't that the way it goes. And then we got the wedding scene and Duncan takes up the mask of the hunter. We'll talk more about that next time. I love how the hunter becomes this sort of legacy identity but this is the only time in this entire four-parter we hear the name Lady Macbeth a very significant name if you know your Shakespeare and I think now would be a good time to talk about how Demona is way more of a Shakespearean Macbeth than Grock ever was uh
1: yeah and that was all very intentional it becomes clearer in the next couple episodes I think too um is that, you know, if you were gonna cast a production of Macbeth, of Shakespeare's Macbeth, you might cast Macbeth as Macbeth, but you'd never cast Gruach as Lady Macbeth, you'd cast Demona, Um which, of course, is one of the impetuses for a story that I still haven't told yet, which is um, The Weird Macbeth, which is the Weird Sisters version of Macbeth. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, just part and parcel of the... Uh, of, and it, you know, maybe in the Gargoyles universe, uh, as the story got back to Old Will, it all got confused, and he thinks he's basing Lady Macbeth on Gruach, but in fact he's basing Lady Macbeth on Demok.
2: Any, we'll like any chance we'll see that weird Macbeth story now that you've got Dynamite? Uh,
1: I think there is. I mean, you know there are other things I need to do first. Um, that story's so odd. (laughs) Um, that, uh, you know, I need to establish the show for new readers and as well as old. And, um, before we get to something so far out there, like the weird McBeth, but, uh, given enough issues. Yeah. I would, I, I've been dying to tell that story for since 1995. So, uh,
0: We'll get to it
2: eventually if I've got to survive. Before we flash back to the uh, present, Tuppence, you did all the research and you know your Scottish history. What are your thoughts on how they did with it throughout the course of this episode? We talked about that a little bit before we started recording, but he said he watched part three as well.
0: Yeah, watch I watched this and- part two and three. I, I was totally impressed. Really impressed. Um, because um, you know, there's a lot of detail here, and um, you know, you have to keep track of all the characters, and um, you know, you're dealing with uh, murkiness because it's so long ago, um, and your the sources aren't very accurate. Um, so, I think um, you know, the story does a great job with it; gives you a real flavor for it, and uh, I was really impressed.
2: I was definitely impressed the first time I saw this, and I didn't know any of that. I mean, I knew the Shakespearean Macbeth. I had seen a production at some point before I saw this, but um, so this. And at first, I was thinking before I knew what they were doing, they're committing revisionism here. And then I apparently found out. Didn't John Riz Davies say that to you in the booth at one point, Greg? Yeah, I think I
1: think you mentioned this last episode, but uh, but yeah, his initial reaction was that, yeah, we were he didn't know the history, but he knew obviously he knew Shakespeare's Macbeth really, really well. Um, and so you know us uh, in essence he was like, oh, you're you know you're you're changing it all. And I'm like, well, no, actually uh, Shakespeare changed it all. well, really Hollands head changed it all. Shakespeare followed Holland's head believe, that's right,.
0: But, wow.
1: uh, Yeah. um, But, uh, you know, this is more accurate to the history. I said, you know, maybe we're adding gargoyles into it. But other than that, (laughs) we're trying to be really faithful to the history. And once he uh, heard that, once he uh, heard that, he became interested in it. And he very much got on board and was very excited about it, at least at the time. I don't know how much... Again, 30 years later, he remembers of it, but back then, um, he definitely got into it and relished it. And, uh, obviously he does just a phenomenal job. We didn't have him play really young Macbeth last episode, you know, um, because John's voice is just, uh, so deep that it didn't feel like, uh, he could get down there to being like a, a kid. Um, but even here, Macbeth is pretty young in tendered too. And, and John plays him, um, as this young guy who's full of fire, but also full of doubt. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, a young hero in love and thwarted. And I mean, the, the scene <clears throat> we don't, haven't mentioned that to me is really heartbreaking is that scene where he breaks up with Gruak and and even tells her um, that she's not worth the trouble when he's madly in love with her because he thinks doing what's right for her, he thinks he's protecting her by making her marry Gilcombe gang, (laughs) which is horrible. (laughs) Um, but, But, you know, in the context of the society that he was brought up in, You know, running off with him, he thinks is a too big sacrifice for her to make as opposed to, um, at least being, um, Lady Gilcombe, uh, where she still, you know, maintains her, her courtly standing and isn't on the run and Gilcombe gains, you know, uh, Saying in Moray and and, uh, and can give her a good life. And so he thinks he's doing her a favor. Of course, he's deciding for her. So, you know, it's not perfect. But I do think it's kind of heartbreaking. She's devastated. And once she leaves, he's clearly devastated. And, you know, that seemed parallels to, and we'll talk about it in a couple episodes, but to what happened in the fourth episode of Sleepstone. Stone. So it was also
2: laying pipe a bit too. Before we flash back to the present, I actually had the pleasure of meeting John Reeves Davies at New York Comic Con back in 2015, and he signed my copy of Season Two, Volume One of Gargoyles. And he actually was very delighted to see that I brought the copy. Usually, people bring him copies of Lord of the Rings or other things or Indiana Jones to autograph and he had. He said he had some very fine memories he at the time he was doing a lot of voice work and he said that out of and I'm not making this up he actually said this out of all the shows he did voice work for this one was his favorite the scripts constantly impressed him and that man could talk if there weren't more people online I mean I would have loved to have had dinner with the guy he just seems (laughs) like he can just talk 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 all sorts of stories I mean he was a delight very he was very much a gentleman it was a pleasure to speak with him
1: uh, yeah, I mean, John, it was a pleasure to have him in the booth. Obviously, incredibly talented, um, you know, fun, um, and he did. He got into it. You could tell he was into it. You know, um, I think it. I think from the moment he walked in the door, it was sort of a kick for him to be playing a character named Macbeth. You know, it. We peeled the onion back to reveal who Macbeth was. And I don't even think John knew that. I mean, we probably knew more than we even told John at the beginning. But I'm sure we gave him a few hints at what was coming with the character um, way back in season one. Um, But the the real trick to it was is that, you know, back when he recorded Macbeth in season one, we didn't know for sure we'd get a season two. So, you know, he's got to take a lot on faith. But I think it was just you know, a smile for him to be playing a character named Macbeth at all on a kid's cartoon. You know, and so the deeper we got into the character with each succeeding episode, the more John got into playing him. And, and, you know, he was just wonderful, and he was also game for anything. You know, if we said, hey, we need an archaeologist that doesn't sound like Macbeth, do that. You know, he did. Um, uh, whatever we needed, he was game to do. Uh, like I said, just a, a joy to work with was, you know, all our cast really, but, uh, John was a great, uh, recurring guest star to bring in and, and a, a great presence in the booth. Even back then, before Lord of the Rings, if you're a big geek like me, having John Rhys Davies in your booth at all, is like fantastic, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Believe me, I was tempted to bring Lord of the Rings for to be autographed as well, but it felt right for me to bring guardwells and I'm glad I did. It was it was so I've kind of I didn't tell this part. As soon as he signed it for me, he said, "I'm going to sign right here, right next to Marina Sirtis, so that Demona can feel Macbeth's grip around his
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Really, he said that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he added, I love, and then he added, I love Marina actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, John was part of that whole
1: Paramount Star Trek thing. You, you know, he's was Leonardo da Vinci on, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Voyager. And, uh, so, you know, they all traveled in the same circles and, and, um, and John and Marina had, great time together playing off each other just really fun um uh you know it's there's nothing like breaks and fairness playing off each other i mean there's nothing like that but uh but you know john and marina was also a lot of fun they just really got it both got into it and had a great time very cool and marina's wow. amazing in this episode i mean just you know every level Terrific.
2: Alright, we return to the present with another ver- very chilling scene where Goliath and Brooklyn discover the ma- the new massacre and I'm and as soon as Brooklyn brings up Elisa Goliath, who up until this time had been a little bit wishy-washy about how to deal with Demona and not knowing how to he openly contemplates killing her
1: Yeah, he's clearly ready to kill her at that moment this but this is, a, this is finally Um, beyond the pale for him, you know, uh, what she's done here. And the fact that she doesn't see any, that the resonance that's obvious to him and to Brooklyn, to the Wyvern Massacre, that either she doesn't see it or she sees it as proper revenge, that she has no empathy. She doesn't look at this and go, oh, my God, what am I doing? And so, yeah, I think in that moment, he's ready to kill her until the Three Stone Sisters start talking to (laughs) him. And I love the Weird Sisters in this episode, you know, from top to bottom. Again, this is Cass playing all, Cass to see, playing all three wonderfully and giving these subtle distinctions between them. But, um, you know, I wondered last night when I was watching it again, and I hadn't seen it in years probably, um, you know, there's a scene where you sort of uh, pan past the three stone girls from behind. And I wondered if people, because we've seen all these stone humans, right, all throughout the episode, right? And I wondered if, you know, people seeing it when they saw it for the first time, if they noticed those three connected them up to the three girls from the bank in the first episode or to the weird sisters at all or if it was just oh yeah more stone statues and they paid no attention to it until you see them until they start
2: talking <laughs> uh, I think creepy
4: girls start talking
2: I think by this time we knew we had to be looking for them <laughs> I mean it's only been yeah, over 20 years sense. but yeah
1: that's a creepy moment when they start talking and then when <laughs> Brooklyn, Brooklyn taps them, yeah, one. and one by one they all disintegrate. You're just like, oh man,
2: uh, that's a nice creepy little moment. It's so too. creepy, yeah. yeah. Followed followed by Goliath and Brooklyn following the trail of corpses. You this what, in the afternoon, yeah. four thirty, right after <laughs> Goof Troop. <laughs> oh, he'll right. Well,
4: then we then we end up. Uh, with, with Xanatos and, uh, confronting Demona.
1: And, well, yeah, uh, I mean, what you get here is hero Xanatos, which is always fun to play. I mean, Xanatos oh, yeah. is a great villain, but it's always fun to play hero Xanatos on occasion. You know, him saving himself and Fox in the helicopter at the very beginning, him saving Owen here, risking, you know, the whole thing. Because from his point of view, he's got to turn off this broadcast, right, to save everybody risked it all to save Owen um, and uh, and then you know that's great and then it's interrupted by the modern hunter who comes in
2: um, Oh, I, I have no doubt considering the position they were in had Macbeth not shown up when he did Xanatos would have been killed right then and there. No doubt at all. So he really does value Owen and it was a pleasure to see that after years and years before and even after this scene so many villains willing to leave their most loyal henchmen to die. Yeah. Um, you
1: know, Xanatos has his uh you know, his check marks in the plus column too, you know. Um no one is complete and this episode was about that. No one's completely one thing or another. In the past, when you see Demona thank Macbeth, you know, she's just thanked the human for saving her life. She's glad they're even that she doesn't owe him, right? Uh, but she's like, good, and she gets the, you know, gets the hell out of there. But, uh, um, but, you know, that, I think, is one of the things that sort of sets... Um, certainly in the 90s sets Gargoyles apart from other shows is that our villains were pretty you know you got you got Manitos, Damona, and Macbeth and those are some pretty complex villains with complex backstories um, unique points of view and they're not 100% evil no matter how bad they get nothing is 100% ever Um, and that makes for A lot of great story material. And then, you know, the moment at the end, once Goliath's come in and Xanatos is copping to everything, you know, he's not pretending, oh, I had nothing to do with this. Cops to it, right? And Goliath is furious with him. And Xanatos says, you want vengeance or a solution? And they declare a truce. And I loved ending the episode that way. You know, Goliath and Xanatos, you know, down the road, they've teamed up or at least, you know, had moments of alliance often enough that um, I don't know, you know, if it has the same effect as the first time we all saw it, right? Um, I should really say you all because, of course, I thought, I built it, but, uh, uh <laughs> but, you know, to me, I think, you know, in that moment, that's a great, that's our cliffhanger for the episode. It's not the it's not Macbeth, it's Xanatos and Goliath shaking hands. And you think, where is that going to lead? You know, um, because, oh my God, this was the guy. The Goliath nearly dropped off the castle back in Episode 5, right? Um, and now they're teaming up? Holy moly. <laughs>
2: no. And what I love about Xanatos copying... that was
1: just a fun place.
2: Yeah, and what I love about Xanatos copying everything is a nice mirror of Demona copying to nothing. So he's admitting his responsibility and he's willing to do what it takes to fix things. And I really enjoy yeah. that. And, 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 his and wife is
1: a stone statue. Owen is a stone statue. He wants him back.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So if that means teaming up with Goliath, why not?
2: And he's not making any excuses. I love it. And, I
4: really yeah. think he, he knows his only chance of fixing this is to team up with Goliath. Like, he can't do this on his own. He's going to, like he says, the, cal- the cavalry's here. Like, he knew they'd be there, and he knows that he needs them.
2: Right, I think so. And before we wrap things up, we do have a great fight scene between Demona and the modern I hunter. I
4: freaking love this fight scene. I love how just all the shots and the angles and stuff. It is so awesome. I love it so much.
1: Yeah. There's some great board work there and the animation lives up to it. This, this episode is really good looking. Yeah. I mean, we talked last. Uh, you know, two weeks ago about uh, part one and how, you know, for the Korean studios, it wasn't up to Japanese level, but it was pretty good. And if they would just gotten the Demona's models right, you know. Um, yeah. But this one, um, there's some great looking shots in this. Um, just really terrific stuff. This was... Um, Really well done. Coco was really on their game for this episode. Um, and yeah, that last fight uh, is terrific. All that stuff through the air. Uh, you know, Beth is crazy. I mean, the modern hunter is crazy. He's taking chances like you wouldn't believe. which begin to make sense when you find out what his motivation is down the road. But, uh, you know, that is some... I love her moment
4: when she realizes who he is and yeah. (laughs) so now at this point, like it, she confirmed knows who he is, who this hunter is, but we are still a kind of iffy on it.
1: Right. So you've got uh, a guy shows up in a hunter's mask and she sees that initially. And she's like, ah, the hunter, how many times do I have to kill you? And you know, we've, seen her kill or participate in the death of Gilkong gang right so how many times what does that refer to right is this the second is this the tenth what does that mean but then he shoots her and not only does she feel pain from that lightning gun uh which we designed to look a little bit like a staple gun I always loved that design um, <laughs> um but he feels pain. He feels her pain. And at that point, she knows exactly who is behind that mask. And so it changes things for her. Initially, she's just going to kill this guy again. Once she realizes who it is, she's running. Um, and he's not going to let her get away, or at least he's going to try very, very hard not to let her get away. Uh, And, you know, all this becomes clearer, more explained in the next couple episodes. But, you know, the mystery of who he is, or even if you know he's Macbeth because you recognize his voice and his airship and and his gun and all that stuff, even if you figured that out, there's still this big mystery is that Macbeth hated the Hunter. Why in hell is he wearing that mask? Right? Um, Yeah. And this episode does not explain that. It only deepens the mystery. And why, when he shot her, is he feeling pain? Um, And all that is, you know, answers still to come. But we were trying, at the same time we were trying to show the backstory of these characters, we were trying to, very consciously, to keep the mystery alive in the present. That nothing is exactly as you think it is. You know, back in episode one, it's like, oh, we think this is about stealing a minute from everybody's life. No, it's not. No one's turning to stone. We know what that's about, but we don't yet. We don't have all the information yet. There's more to come.
2: All right. I suppose we can wrap things up now. I think we had a very productive discussion. Tuppence, I want to thank you very much for coming on and lending us your insight into all of this.
0: Thank you both so much for having me.
2: Do you have Loved any... having you. Thank you... you so much. Do you have any final comments, Tubbins?
0: No, I've been listening to this uh, uh, discussion, and, you know, I just I love Greg and his interweaving all of these different threads, and it's <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I, it's just a, it's such a great show. All true, right. true.
2: Thanks. And do we have any projects that we want to plug? This is coming out on Black Friday. 12 days before a certain comic book comes out.
1: Uh, Well, uh, as I've been doing pretty much every time on this show, I've got two things to plug. I've got Young Justice Targets. Issue uh, 6 will be coming into stores in December. um, And uh, uh, I hope people pick it up. I think it's a great uh, ending for the six-issue miniseries. Um, I think Chris Jones just outdid did himself on this last issue. Uh, it's really gorgeous and there's a lot of great stuff in it. Um, so I hope people, and if you haven't bought any young justice targets, what are you waiting for? Buy it. But, um, uh, and then obviously as, as Greg indicated, December 7th, uh, Gargoyles number one hits stores. And, uh, I am really excited about the story. Gargoyles number one. And, um, glad to be back in and am among these characters and uh, um, it's a, a joy to me so uh, I hope everyone uh, picks it up and then keeps going because I think we're going to have a lot of fun
2: I just read the digital version of Young Justice issue 6 targets today and I concur with everything you said it was a nice conclusion to that arc I really enjoyed it and I hope this is not all there is Left to be said about this universe, I hope for more at some point, so keep binging injustice hashtag only put the hashtag at the front exactly <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I, I, it's more
1: it's more useful that way yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> and hashtag keep binging gargoyles and hashtag hopefully by then we'll we'll have decided either hashtag gargoyles dynamite or hashtag dynamite gargoyles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think we've decided on hashtag gargoyles dynamite. I I think the uh I think the uh argument that someone made that uh are looking for gargoyles first, not for dynamite first. And so uh I think that's what we're gonna stick with. Hashtag gargoyles dynamite.
2: Cool. All right. And sounds good. And you can
1: good. just do hashtag gargoyles. That's fine,
2: too. <laughs> and to all well, our listeners, I, we hope you had a great Thanksgiving yesterday. We th- and, and on that note, we thank you all for listening. Tuppence, once again, thank you for coming on. Greg, thank you for constantly doing this and all your insight on the making of this wonderful series that you made. <laughs> and Jennifer, thank you for everything. Well, you know, I do do everything. So <laughs> anyway,
4: <laughs> happy Thanksgiving, everyone.
2: And we'll be back next time. Happy Thanksgiving.
1: For-
2: happy Thanksgiving. And we'll be back next time for City of Stone Part 3.
4: Another human bites the dust, or rather turns to dust.